0: You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Ephesians 2 is where we're going to be, so it would be helpful to have that just out, and you can just leave it open on your lap there. That would be great. And uh, as you're uh, kind of getting settled in there, let me just get you a couple of things uh, by way of um, a few announcements. One is I just wanted to take a second to affirm Jimmy preaching last week in a very difficult issue And I just think handled it with such care and did such a great job with that. So I just wanted to say that. And if you were here last week, you got to experience that. Yes. Um, If you are new with us today, uh, this, uh, first of all, thank you so much for being here. It is such a privilege and a joy to have you um, worshiping Jesus with us, thinking about these things with us, opening up the Bible and learning from Jesus this morning with us. So thank you so, so much for being here this morning. And if you are new, there should be a card like this under your seat. If you'll make sure you take that card, fill out that black section at the end of the service, we'll pass around an offering basket. And we'll put that. if you'll put that card in the basket, that would really help us serve you. So if you would do that for us, we would greatly, greatly appreciate that. And if you're here this morning and you have any prayer requests that we could be interceding and, and praying to God on your behalf. We would love to do that as a church family. You can fill out the red section for that and uh, and put that in the offering basket, and that would put it on our public prayer list where um, we would be interceding on your behalf as a church. And then lastly, I wanted just to, to actually say something you've probably noticed over the last few weeks. We have been changing and just kind of tiptoeing into a um, just kind of doing a trial run on a new service flow. So rather than doing most of our singing up front and then the preaching and then maybe a song at the end, we are doing a couple of songs up front, preaching, and then several songs at the end, two or three songs at the end. And so, which means we're preaching earlier, we're starting right on, I mean, all those things, it's like super important that you're here right at nine in this uh, room. So I just want to encourage you that if, if in your mind, you know, you think if I show up at nine o'clock, you know, I pull into the parking lot at nine, I'm on time, you're really going to get in here probably nine, 10 to nine, 15. So I just want to encourage you to think in terms of like 8:45 to 8:50 to is like show-up time if you want to be in here at, at nine and actually start with us on a Sunday morning. And here's the reason why I think that is so important. If you can, if you can picture the two scenarios of I came in super hurried, uh, I'm just scrambling to get in just in time, and I sit down and now we're opening the Bible and we're preaching and we're, you know, that sort of a hurried heart, versus I build in a little extra time. I'm not so hurried when I sit down. I have sung a couple of songs to Jesus before we hear the word opened up and now I'm ready to absorb and then respond to the Lord. I just think there's so much more for us that could happen here than in that hurried state. So I just wanna encourage you to think about your Sunday mornings in that sort of a way to make sure you're getting here um, early and on time. Okay, we are talking today about the issue of racial reconciliation. In 1983, Ronald Reagan Uh, made the third Monday in January a national holiday celebrating Martin Luther King Jr. So we just take the Sunday right after that. That was last Monday. We take the Sunday right after that to talk about this issue of our desire as a church family to be a racially diverse church. So this is the the theme we're kind of holding up today, the desire, the value we're talking about that's here in our church family. And to preface that and to kind of lead into this morning, I just want to read uh, the end of one of Martin Luther King Jr.'s most famous speeches, one of the most significant speeches in American history. On August 28th, 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. stood in front of the Lincoln Memorial and ended a speech with these words. And by the way, it was a speech to over 250,000 people with these words. Even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It's a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these words to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted and every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain and the crooked places will be made straight. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. And with this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. And this will be the day. This will be the day when all of God's children will be able to sing with new meaning, My country, tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing. Land where my fathers died, and land of the pilgrim's pride, from every mountainside, let freedom ring. And if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. And when this happens, and when we allow freedom to ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet and every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jew and Gentile, Protestant and Catholic, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. Now, the reason that I love the end of that speech is because it is not the articulation of one man's hope, but of God's hope. It's not the articulation of one person's dream. It's the articulation of God's dream. God the Father sent God the Son to accomplish that. And then he sent the Spirit to apply that. Like This is what God is doing. This is what Jesus came to do. This is the incredibly bright future that God is creating for his sons and daughters. And as his sons and daughters, isn't it a joyful privilege to begin to work with Jesus now for what he came to accomplish? That's what we're after as a church. We want to participate with God in what he is doing And that is an articulation of it, a dream of all of these people with all of these divisions living in oneness together. Now that takes us to Ephesians and really where I wanna go this morning. And as we're thinking about Ephesians, let me just, let me pull back and give you some language that I want you just to think about this morning in. We have talked a lot here about the idea of gospel doctrine leading to and producing gospel culture that what we believe should work its way out horizontally into how we live, how we think, what we value, that gospel doctrine should create a gospel culture, that our doctrine should work its way out into a culture that reflects the doctrine that we hold so dear. So in Ephesians 2, we are going to see gospel doctrine. So we're gonna see that. And then I just want us to think together about what is the culture that that doctrine should produce. See where we're going there? So gospel doctrine and gospel culture. So here is the gospel doctrine that we see in Ephesians. If you just want it in a single word, it's the doctrine of reconciliation. That is the theme in Ephesians 2, 11 through 20, the doctrine of reconciliation. And if you have the English standard version, that that translation of the Bible, you'll see right right above verse 11 is kind of the, the theme of the passage. And the theme, as it describes it, is one in Christ. That is the theme we're working with here, reconciliation. How God can make two different distinct groups of people one in Christ. The gospel doctrine, the theme of reconciliation. So let me just take this passage in three different parts. Here's part one, the problem of division. The problem of division. This is the first thing we see in this passage. If you look at verses 11 and 12, you see it very clearly. Here is how Paul describes the division. He says, therefore, remember... That at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul is clarifying division that runs in two different ways. The, the biggest division is vertical division. It is the division that is, that is had between God and his rebellious creation. So Paul is clarifying. There is, the biggest division out there is that one. It's, it's the one running vertically between you and God. But the second problem with division is the horizontal division. That there are groups of people in this passage, Jew and Gentile, who don't like each other. That They are not getting along. There is deep discord and strife and division. And this division ran so, so deep. If you look at verses 14 and verse 16, you see the word hostility describing that division. This is a deep division here. It's a complex division. It was social. Jews at the end of the day and Gentiles just didn't interact with each other. It was segregation at its finest. So it was a social issue. It was a racial issue. William Barclay, a New Testament commentator, he describes the racial dimensions of that Jew-Gentile conflict like this. He said, the Jew had an immense contempt for the Gentile. The Gentiles, said the Jews, were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. Now that is some deep division, isn't it? When you're looking at a group of people and you think the reason God created them was to burn them in hell we've got a big problem, right? This is the Jew-Gentile issue here. Uh, they, they were to be fueled for the fires of hell. God, they said, loved only Israel of all the nations that he had made. It was not even lawful to render help to a Gentile mother in her hour of sorest need, for that would simply be to bring another Gentile into the world. Until Christ came, the Gentiles were an object of contempt to the Jews. The barrier between them was absolute. So much so that if a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl, the funeral of that Jewish boy was carried out. Such contact with the Gentile was the equivalent of death. So you can just see how deeply racial that divide was. But it wasn't just social. It wasn't just racial. It was also religious. The religious system of the day was set up to keep these things separate. So if you think of even how the temple was constructed, here's the basic layout of it you had the, the inner court of the priest, that's where the priest could go. Then outside of that, you had the court of Israel. This is where the Jewish men could go. Then outside of that, just kind of in concentric circles here, the third circle out was the court of, of women. That's where Jewish ladies could go. Then outside of that court of the, for the Jewish ladies, you walk down five steps, platform, down more steps, and you finally reach a four-foot wall. And this wall was the barrier to the court of the Gentiles. Outside of that four-foot wall was where the Gentiles could hang out. They couldn't come inside of that four-foot wall, though. And archaeologists a few hundred years ago found this inscription on that wall. It said this, "...no foreigner may enter within the barrier and enclosure around the temple." anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. That divide was really, really deep. It was complex. It was as deep and complex as any divide among any group of people that you can find on earth today. That's the Jew and Gentile problem. This is the problem this text is addressing. You have the problem of division. Now skip to the end of the text and you're gonna see the creation of oneness. You're gonna see it start with division And then you get to the end, and this is what we we read in verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers. You who were strangers, deeply divided, hostile, you're no longer strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone. In whom the whole creation being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now that's amazing. That is absolutely amazing. We start in the first couple of verses with hostility that has run deep down to the core. The Jew Gentile divide is absolute. And then you get to the end of, of this passage and oneness has replaced that division. Peace has replaced that hostility. Those who were bitter enemies are now reconciled. I mean, that's an amazing thing. You had all of this hostility, all of this division. The division's so deep that, that there's a recognition that there are two different groups. It's you and it's you. Y'all don't like each other. But by the end, oneness had been embraced. Oneness had been created. Those two distinct groups are now one church, One family, one bride of Christ indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That's an amazing thing to see happen there. Now that begs the question, how in the world does that happen? How do you explain the division of the first couple of verses then the oneness embraced of the last few verses in that passage? How in the world is that possible? Explanation point three. The only explanation for that is the explosive power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the only way that can happen. Now, this is what you have sandwiched between them. You have the problem of deep division. That's the first couple of verses. You have oneness created. That's the last few verses. Now look at what is in between, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near Verse 16, And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Now, let me just kind of make sense of this, that text there. The, the first and biggest division that Paul is clarifying exists is that one between God and his rebellious creation. And, and Paul is saying here, that spiritual alienation between you and God, that, that separation between you and God, that hostility between you and God, that has been dealt with in the person and work of Jesus. God the Father sent God the Son into the war zone called human life, right? He lived perfectly in our place. He died on the cross, resurrected from the dead on the third day. Now this passage is asking the, or answering the question, what, what did that accomplish that accomplished the, rec- the reconciliation between God and man. That, that paved the way for you and I who were hostile to God, enemies with God, to be brought back into fellowship with God. Okay, this passage is clarifying that. The deepest division that exists has been cured and, and the, the way through that created by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But, and this is is massive to understand, that, that is not the only thing this passage is saying. It is not saying less than that, but it is saying more than that. Paul's showing us here that the explosive power of the gospel doesn't end with our personal reconciliation to God. The reason, let me say it this way, the reason Jesus died is bigger than just you. He died for you, but not just you. It's not less than you, but it's more than you. Let me say this again concisely here. The, the explosive power of the gospel doesn't end with our personal reconciliation to God, but it continues in a chain reaction that tears apart dividing walls and reconciles dividing people. Now that, that is so important for us to get that clear in our mind. The explosive atomic power of the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't end with our reconciliation to God, but continues in a chain reaction. It just explodes from there, tearing apart, dividing walls and reconciling divided people. Verse 15, I mean, this is what he's saying here. He's saying that this is what the gospel does. It doesn't just save you or rescue you or redeem you. It takes two divided people and makes those two divided people one people. That's what the good news of Jesus does. This is what it is. So maybe you could think about this passage like this. In, in, in part, it is answering the why question of the gospel. Like, why did Jesus die? But Why did he come to earth, live perfectly, die on the cross, raise from the dead on the third day? Why did Jesus do that? Answer, according to this passage, to save both Jew and Gentile. Not so that he would have two separate people, but so that he could make two separate people, one people. That is the the reason Jesus died. We could be reconciled to God, yes. And then through that, divisions could, could all be wiped away and these divided people could become one people. And this passage also leads us to think about how does that happen? What is is the means that God does that with? And and this passage is showing us there is only one power big enough in the universe to do that sort of work, to not only reconcile us to God, but to reconcile divided people together. There's only one power big enough, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That alone can do it. Um, uh, H.B. Charles is a prominent African-American preacher. Love this guy. I love how he says it. He says, they, people, just culture, they they say blood is thicker than water. You've heard that? That's a common uh, myth that's out there. Blood is thicker than water. He says, this is what people say, that blood is thicker than water, AKA race is thicker than water. Your background is thicker than water. They say blood is thicker than water, but then he finishes that sentence by saying this, but not if that water is baptism. And I love that. He is saying Ephesians 2 is true. When, when the water that, that is bringing you together is the, is the blood of Jesus rescuing you, that has unique power that transcends your race or your ethnic background. That has unique power to take these divided people and to bring divided people together. It has unique power to do that. So this is gospel doctrine. It's the doctrine of reconciliation. Now that leads us to ask the question, what sort of culture should that doctrine create? What sort of vibe and ethos and values in a church should be created out of the doctrine that we're seeing in Ephesians 2? Here, I think, is the short answer to that. It should create a culture that values and pursues diversity. Now, that is not just my opinion. This is what we see Paul put into practice Like in some ways, we're depending on Paul to show us. Paul, will you show us what sort of culture that should create? And in Acts, Paul shows us the sort of culture this should create. Now think about what happens in Acts. In Acts, this is Paul's normal kind of means of how he operates. He goes into any city that he's going to and he starts in the, the synagogue. This is where the Jews hang out. He pleads and reasons for the sake of Jesus in there. Then he goes and finds where the Gentiles hang, you know, hang out. He pleads and reasons you know, for Jesus there. You see this perfectly uh, played out in Acts chapter nine. Ironically, it's the story of the beginning of the church in Ephesus, the, the exact people that Paul is pinning this letter to. In Ephesus, in Acts 19, Paul starts in the synagogue. He, he, for three months, every day, he is reasoning and pleading for the sake of Jesus. And then some, people meet, some Jewish people meet Jesus in the synagogue. Then he leaves the synagogue and for the next two years, every day he wakes up and he goes to the hall of Tyrannus. And he he goes into the hall. This is where the Gentiles hang out. He pleads for Jesus in there. He reasons with people. He pleads with them to, to meet. And Gentiles meet Jesus in the hall of Tyrannus. Now you've got converts in Ephesus, some of which are Jews and some of which are Gentiles. And that is gonna lead us to the big question. What in the world is Paul gonna do with these Gentile people who don't like these Jewish people and these Jewish people who don't really get along with these Gentile people? Is Paul gonna go this route? Is he gonna to go to like the north side of Ephesus and plant his Gentile church, then go to the south side of Ephesus and, and plant his Jewish church? Is that, is that how he's gonna roll? In, in That's not what he does. He plants one church. In Ephesus, made up of both Jew and Gentile. If you look in the book of Acts, what you're going to see is this is the normal kind of way Paul operates. Jews and Gentiles meet Jesus, and then Jew and Gentile aren't in two separate churches. They are in one church together. Now, why would Paul do that? Why would this be Paul's way of going about his church planting work? I think it's because he really does believe the gospel doctrine that he's laid down in in Ephesians 2. In particular, verse 14. For he himself, Jesus himself, this is what Paul is saying Jesus has done. Jesus himself, he is our peace, who has made us both one. Jew, Gentile, divided people, one people. He's made us both one. And Jesus has broken down in his flesh his death on the cross, the dividing wall of hostility. That's why there's not two separate churches in Ephesus. That's why there's one, both Jew and Gentile in that church. Now that begs the question, how has the American church done in this regard? How have we, how have we done in the couple of hundred year history that we have in regards to breaking down these walls of hostility and one church being created? In answering that, I would just start it this way. One of the great tragedies of the American church is its history of erecting rather than eradicating dividing walls. If you look back in the history of the American church, one of the great tragedies is our history, the American church's history of erecting rather than eradicating dividing walls. In 1787, a black man went into a Methodist church in Philadelphia. It was the church he went to in Philadelphia. And this African-American man uh, prayed, he he bent down, he was on his knees praying in the all white section of that Methodist church in Philadelphia. Now, you know, when I just hear that much, it just makes me wonder just how the, the heart of God bleeds just to see that there was a time when there was a white section and a black section in a church. So this man is, African-American man is praying in the all-white section. The, the white people in the church were so offended by that that they didn't even let the man finish praying. They jerked him up out of the all-white section and threw him out of the church. Rightfully so then, the African-Americans that made up you know, part of that church family were so offended and hurt by that that They bought a little blacksmith shop across town and there began the African Methodist Episcopal Church. And there began the sad trajectory of most American denominations, of we have two separate things going on. Fast forward a hundred years later, the Southern Baptists separated themselves from the General Baptists over the issue, primarily over the issue of slavery. Now, I, many of my roots are in the Southern Baptist world and I'm really grateful that over the last decade or so, they have corporately sought for, acknowledged their sin and corporately sought forgiveness. I think it's a great thing there, but this is part of our history. Roughly 100 years after that, we're into the 1960s now, Martin Luther King Jr. said this, we must face the sad fact that at the 11 o'clock hour on Sunday morning, when we stand to sing, we stand in the most segregated hour in America. And the most segregated school is Sunday school. Now we're living in 2017. And I think this would be the way many of us in the room would think. Surely like we're like beyond that. Like we've moved past all that. Surely we're there, right? Sociologists say no to that that when we bring it up to the present day, that we are not past these sort of things. So sociologists use an 80-20 rule to define what it means to be a diverse church. So if you're considered diverse in the terms of like how sociologists would look at churches, it would mean that there is no ethnicity in your church that is more than 80% of that church's overall population. So to be a diverse church, according to sociologists, the, the biggest you know, ethnicity in the church has to be less than 80%. Now, when you apply that standard to the, a couple of hundred thousand churches in America that love Jesus, right? When you apply that standard to that, here's what you find. 2.5% of Jesus loving churches are considered diverse. 2.5% of the several hundred thousand churches are considered diverse in America. Now here, I, I say all of that just to, to virtually, you know, in summation say this, the issues of race are deep and complex, so deep. And I, I think all of us want to at times apply simplistic sort of band-aids to it, but they are deep and complex, especially the the issues between African-Americans and white Americans. That is especially deep and complex. And I'm trying to just give that history and then where we are to the present and and just even in saying the statistics of where churches are right now to say that these, these issues still linger That in many ways, there are still dividing walls up, even if we're not intentionally trying to erect them. There are still dividing walls up that go directly against the culture that should be produced from our gospel doctrine of Ephesians chapter 2. There's still those dividing walls. Now, let me just press this one step forward now. Underneath all of these deep and complex layers of division and how divisions and, and these issues sort of worked, underneath all of that stuff up here, these, the, all these presenting issues, lies the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like the power to actually change these things and to bring these sort of walls down. And the church's failure to prioritize this issue of racial reconciliation, of, of this pursuit of racial diversity among our churches. The church's failure to, to prioritize that has been the reason, one of the main reasons, that the one thing that could change the issue, namely that the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it has kept the one thing that could change the issue away from the issue. Like the church has the one thing that, if you can insert it into the issue, could actually be helpful. It could actually change things. But because the church has been so reluctant to step into this with full force and with a priority and a value on it, it has kept that one thing away from it. Tony Evans, in his book, uh, Oneness Embrace, he believes this racial strife is still a problem in our country. Because racial reconciliation has not been a priority in the church. That racial strife in our country is still a problem, because racial reconciliation has not been a priority in the church. And I would agree with that. I think in so many, you know so many different ways that are really humbling, our culture's issues are really reflecting church issues. He, he goes on to say this. The reason we haven't solved the race problem in America after hundreds of years is that people apart from God are trying to create unity, while people under God who already have unity are not living out the unity we possess. The result of both of these conditions is disastrous for America. Our failure to find cultural unity as a nation is directly directly related to the church's failure to preserve our spiritual unity. In so doing, we have limited the degree to which the healing balm of God's grace flows freely from us into our communities and ultimately throughout our land. Now, here is just one of the key moments in our service today where I am just asking God to humble our hearts, I'm asking God to allow us as a church, for us as individuals to look back in our past, to own and grieve our sins, to receive the grace of God this morning, and then to stand up with an eager willingness to jump into this, to value this, to pursue these things. And I'm just praying God would do that for us as a church family. There would be proper ownership and there would be this massive grace of God just flow into our hearts, enabling us to embrace this value of racial diversity in new, fresh, and vibrant ways. Now, let me get just really practical for a few minutes here. And I want to tell you, you know, there's a theological reason why this is important. Ephesians 2 lays out the theological reason. But let me also give you some practical reasons why this is such an important thing for us right now, where we are right here in Midlothian in this time and day. Let me just give you a couple of the... the, statistical things on why this is important, practical things. Let me start on a, on a country-wide like sort of view, and then I wanna get down into a communal view. So let me start on the country-wide sort of a, of a view here. And let me just kind of lay out some of the demographics, how America is changing. Let me just give you a couple of, of instances of this. On a country-wide level, here's what we know. Today, minorities make up roughly one-third of the U.S. population. Okay, so that's roughly 30%. And that roughly 30% is expected to pass 50% by the year 2042. In other words, white folk in America will no longer be the majority come 2042. By 2023, minorities will comprise more than half of all children in the U.S. The Hispanic population in the United States is projected to triple from 46 million to 132 million by 2050. Is that not staggering? That the sort of growth in the Hispanic population? Uh, Hispan- the Hispanic population will move from 15% of the total population to 30% of the total population. So you can just see how they're out, you know, Hispanics are gonna outpace the growth in multiple other ethnicities. And then for, for our African-Americans, the black population is projected to increase from 41 million to 65 million by 2050. So I say all that to say, at the end of the day, this, these issues are not going away. And, and as the, like the country that we know, America, continues to, to grow in its diversity, man, what a wonderful opportunity for the church to then actually be reflecting God's heart for diversity. It, it's just so primed across our country for that. Now let's boil it down to a communal issue. And let me show you this dot map. It's going to be on the screen for you. A researcher in Virginia mapped our entire country. He put one dot on the map for every single person living in the United States of America. And the map is color-coded by ethnicity. So in the map, or on this map, and you can find this online, I'd encourage you to look at it. It's really fascinating to see how these things work out. But, but in this map, blue is, is white people, green are black people. Orange are Hispanic people, red are Asian people, and brown is kind of the everything else melting pot that is our kind of, you know, diversifying country. Now, here's what I wanna just point out really briefly here. You can see Midlothian down here at the very bottom of that map. And if you could zoom in, what you would see about Midlothian is it has a lot of blue dots to it. But I just want you to see how, if you just look at how like cities grow, There would be a normal expectation for what is to the north of us right now to be pressing down. As we grow, it's going to grow and look more like what is to the north of us. And you can just see that when you go up 67, that the color of the dots change, right? There are a lot of green dots and a lot of orange orange dots to the north of us. Now, here's what that means. Over time, Midlothian is going to grow. And it is going to grow in a way that's not going to look like Midlothian right now. It is going to grow in its diversity. Now, let's just tease out a question here. When you think about that, that is going to happen. Midlothian is going to be a diverse place in the future. When you think about that, does that feel destabilizing to you? Threatening to you? I just... Take stock of what your heart feels in that moment. Now, I just want to express what my heart feels. I honestly can't believe that's happening. I, w- first of all, when I think of like when we first planted in Midlothian, I just didn't know at the time that Midlothian was going to experience the explosive growth that is likely in front of us. Like by the time I got here and then you go the next like 20 or 20, 25 years out, Quadrupling probably in, in size is kind of in our future. I just, that is so amazing that God would have planted me and Stonegate Church, right, us, right here in the midst of that. Then on top of that, that God would put in us a hunger to see diversity happen, to see God's church be God's diverse church, to see that, a hunger for that. And then in the providence of God, as God grows our city, God is going to grow our city with much diversity. Can you believe that? I mean, in the providence of God, God is saying, hey, can I just set it up on a platter? I'm just going to toss you a softball stone gate and let you start swinging at it. If you want to see this come to fruition, I'm going to create the sort of dynamic around you where you can actually see that happen. I mean, can you just imagine the kingdom possibilities that are right there in that that we are going to grow and we're going to grow in diversity. And we as a church then get the opportunity to have a church family that is going to be a great model of what heaven will one day look like. Make it, that is just, there's such great kingdom possibilities in that. And practically, we've got to figure that out. We've got to get this working in us and get this moving in us if we want to see that happen. If we want to be a church that can actually minister to a growing diversity in our community. So there is a real practical concern with that as well, both theological and practical. Now, let me just finish by giving some steps forward, some steps forward. I just want to give you a couple of things here to think about as we begin moving forward in this. If we're gonna create a culture that values diversity, here's just a few things I think we all need to be mindful of. Number one, that we need to pray for it. I'm just begging you, pray for this. Let's thank God for the strides that we've made and let's just pray, pray, pray that God would give us more. At the end of the day, I am 100% convinced that good strategy is not enough. Good intentions are not enough. Hard work is not enough. It is like those things plus the explosive power of a move of God. And let's pray for that. Let's ask God to do that. Let's pray. Secondly, let's pursue it corporately. That's going to look like multiple things. That's going to look like we're pursuing staff that's more diverse. That's going to look like we're pursuing leadership that's more diverse. If we want to be a diverse church, we have to have diverse staffs. We're just asking God to help us in that. That's um, also going to affect our, our style of how we go about doing things. In particular, our worship services, how we sing and how we set up services. We're always just trying to, to evaluate how can we be more sensitive to multiple ethnicities in the way that we're doing our, our gatherings and we're setting up our gatherings and we're, you know, the ethos in our church. How can we be more conducive and more sensitive to multiple different ethnicities? Now, do you know what that means? It means that we all have to stack our hands on this we are willing to die for our preferences. We're willing to die to our preferences for the sake of this. Without a willingness to die to our preferences, this will not happen. It cannot. And I wanna just anticipate the one objection. Just imagine a person saying, and this is all of us to varying degrees, no, I don't wanna give up my preferences. (laughs) No, why should I have to do that? Now, let me give you an analogy of why you should do that. Let me state it first and I'll give you an analogy. Here's the reason We should all stack our hands on letting go of our preferences for the sake of of a more diverse church. It is because God has called you to marry a diverse bride. This is what the church of Jesus Christ is. The church of Jesus Christ is not an homogenous crew. Revelation 5 shows us that it is every nation, tongue, and tribe in there. That means that we, when we marry God's church, we are not marrying a particular ethnicity. We are marrying God's diverse church, right? So we're marrying God's diverse bride. Now, can you imagine a man um, getting married? He's on his wedding day. He's, he's getting married and he looks at his to-be wife and says, listen, I just want you to know, I am, I am not letting go of any of my preferences. Everything I want is what I'm gonna get here. I don't really care what you want or what you would like. It's my way or nothing else. Can you imagine that, that, that marriage would be doomed before it started, right? It just wouldn't work. And in the same way, when you come into a church, we all have to think like this. What does it look like for me to marry these people? That that means I'm gonna be sensitive to their wants and their needs. That means I'm gonna let go of a lot of the way I would like it for the sake of the way they would like it. Now, just a quick word to um, any minority, all of our minorities in our church family. I just wanna say thank you because I know this about Stonegate thus far you have given up way more of your preferences than I've given up mine. And I just wanna say thank you for your willingness to do that, for your patience and kindness and grace for us along the way. I wanna say thank you for that. And secondly, I want you to know that we need you. this, This will never become a reality at Stonegate Church without those that are minorities to be in on this with us And so I just want you to know that like we value you and we like our posture toward you is we love you and we recognize our great need of what you bring to the table to help in all of that. So I want you to know that if you're a minority in our context. And then lastly, so let's pursue it corporately. And then thirdly, let's pursue it personally. Let's pursue it personally. Without a personal pursuit, this will not happen. It will not happen. So I think this is the best way that I could articulate what it is that I'm asking from everyone in our church family. I am not saying that you have to make racial reconciliation or the pursuit of diversity, the number one emphasis of your life, but I am asking you to make it an emphasis of your life. And here's why I'm asking that. If you're not willing to make it an emphasis, this will never happen in our church family. I, if you just watch how relationships work, this is the way they work in your life and the way they work in my life. This is our default setting. Our default setting is to become friends with people who look like us and think like us. That is how we develop friendships. It's how it, the default way it works is just like that. And without intentionally pulling in the other direction, we will not develop friendships with people who don't look like us and think like us. So I'm, this is why I'm asking you to make it an emphasis of your life, to make it a thing in your life for you to prioritize friendships with people who don't look like you. Like when I think about this, I think of it in terms of like, pursue diversity at your dinner tables, pursue diverse dinner tables. I think about your last six months of just the life that you've lived and ask yourself the question, how many times have people been at your dinner table who don't look like you and think like you? And if the answer's none, what a great opportunity to change that. And you know what's been so encouraging for me to see? So many of our church family wanting to see that change, proactively pursuing change in that area. So let's pursue this personally through diversified dinner tables, by pursuing friendships with people who don't look and think like us. The goal is not just a diversified Sunday morning thing. The the goal is that we would be diversified in our relational networks, in our friendships. Let's pursue it through the dinner table. Secondly, let's pursue it personally by being humble learners, by adopting the posture of humble learners. You know, the church of Jesus Christ should be the safest place for people who don't know each other to get to know each other. It should be the safest place for that to happen. It should be a safe, empathetic, easy to get to know you place. Okay, now hear this. If we want a safe, empathetic, easy to get to know you place, or if we want that culture here, we've got to think about what kind of soil does that culture grow out of? Like what what kind of soil do we need for that culture to grow and bloom and flourish here? And here's the soil. It's the soil of humility. Humility of us adopting the posture of a humble learner, a humble learner. And this is especially true if you're in the majority culture like me. Like a lot of times we just don't even have a lens for how our racial IQ is so low. So if we don't develop the, the posture of a humble learner, we'll never broaden our perspective and grow in that. So, so adopting that posture of a humble learner. Pursue that in your relationships. I, when we're relating to people who don't look and think like us, It is just so much better when our posture is humble that we can ask the question, why is it that we don't think and see and feel the same? What what, what is going on here? And regardless of where we are ethnicity-wise, that humble learner posture is how we all win in this. It's how we all grow in this. So adopting the posture of a humble learner in your friendships do that. Here's another way you can adopt that posture of a humble learner, by reading, by reading. This year, I would just love if everyone in our church family just said, this year, I'm not going to read 10 books on this issue, but I'm just going to read one book on it. Just one book in this area, just to to kind of plow the soil of my heart. I'm going to read one book on it. In an effort to serve you in that, we're going to publish on the city, hopefully today, um, and then send out a a couple page document on just some resources that would be good for you to consider. It's not going to be a exhaustive list of things you could read, but it's at least a to get you started list of things that you could read. That I think would be so good, if your posture is humble and you want to learn, would be so good in helping you learn in these sort of, of environments. Let me finish with this. Let me just remind you of the big idea here. God the Father sent Jesus to die. Not only to eradicate the vertical hostility between us and God, but he sent Jesus to die to eradicate the horizontal hostility between God's precious children. That is a part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus died. And as a church family, I am praying that when we think about that, it will be our joy and privilege to join Jesus in that work. Amen. Let's pray together. So Father, would you help us Oh, Father, would you help us? Father, I pray for those in the room who have not been reconciled to you. Ephesians shows us the way that happens. It's the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And if that's you today, if you're wondering, how can I be made right with God? how can I be reconciled to God? The Bible shows us that it's by turning from our sin and throwing our life upon Jesus. And if that's you, I'm praying that right now in this room, in this moment, you would make that decisive step toward Jesus. And for the rest of us in the room, let's just ask God to create the culture in our church that pursues, that values diversity. Just ask God to give that to us. Corporately, let's ask God that. Personally, let's ask God that. So, oh God, would you help us? God, we are telling you that we need help in that today. So God, would you please visit us with power this morning? Would you please personally apply Ephesians 2 to our hearts that would be helpful? Personally, to the power of your spirit, apply it. God, it's in your good name that we ask this. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.